Frank, um, I didn't tell you something before hitting the record button Uh-oh. this week. What's wrong? Um, I'm, I, I'm actually, no, nothing's wrong, I swear, I promise. Okay. <laughs> um, I happen to be dog-sitting <gasps> this weekend. Oh my God, you? You have a dog? I can't even believe it. Uh, a, a dog for the weekend. A dog for the weekend. That's actually a lot, though. That means you have to survive a night. Uh, is it a puppy dog? Is it an old dog? Is it a big dog? Little dog? No. Um, this is uh, Pe- Penelope Pickles. Penny Pickles. That's her <laughs> Instagram. She's pretty Instagram famous. She's an Alaskan Klee miniature husky. Pretty toasty adorbs. You have an Instagram um, famous dog in your house? Wow. Are there like paparazzi yeah. around or something? <laughs> she's She's that type of dog that when you walk down the street with her like everybody stops and just like gives you those eyes like oh my goodness you know what i mean yeah are are you trading instagram cards like did you print some out like are you her rap now (laughs) i did i came through and i was like if you want to take photos five dollars um (laughs) i totally believe it (laughs) no that's it it is definitely something um that i would do that definitely sounds so like I, me. but no it's um, i don't know this breed is it is it a white dog is it a color dog what what, what color um is she you, you know a husky yeah. think of a husky but miniature oh little husky love it i used mini to have husky. a norwegian elk hound when i was a kid and that was kind of like a mini husky Ooh. also so i like the mini huskies they're definitely cute yeah it's um there's you don't see them all that often but when my so it's not a miniature Siberian Husky. It is an Alaskan Klee but it's mm-hmm. it's very, very similar. I will get the um, <laughs> the Wikipedia article over here for people, but she's toasty adorbs. And yeah, so we're we're here. We're here in the apartment recording. She's yeah. like in her crate. She's just hanging out. She, open crate. So she just, she just like she's, living She's bored in there, with but. you. She's like, I'm going to sit in the crate. It's way better. Oh, yeah. She's <laughs> not, she could not even be bothered. Like she's just like, whatever, give me food, give me treats, take me on a walk. Do you at least You're have mine. like an iPad it, in front of her so she can monitor her feed and everything? Like her story, whatever they call it on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> um, I should. That'd IOT pretty, this. Be pretty <laughs> Make the puppy feel proud. <laughs> she she does have like a, this thing called like a dog bit. It's like a Fitbit for dogs, so she can like mon they can like monitor. But we're doing that, like her parents are out of town. For the weekend, so like every hour or two, we're taking a photo and like sending it to her. Like we swear, like we didn't kill your dog. <laughs> oh, you know? Don't even joke. But um, <laughs> <It's> scary. <laughs> but she's she's great. She's super chill. Um, so if she growls or barks, it's because there's other dogs I in look the building forward or to someone. It. Yes, has she yes, been so howling be at night great. for you, keeping you up? The, we just got her today. Ooh, just got her so today. Find so. out. Report back next week. I will. Uh, according to Jesse and, and Sam, who are the, the owners, they said if if we make it <laughs> three nights with Penny, then we we could have any dog forever. Like basically, you know. Oh, so it'll be not a that she's bad. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Not that she's bad. It's more like she just can't be bothered. You know, she's like, whatever. <laughs> so I think that's fine. She's I don't know. She's chill. She's like, give her a blanket. She's chill. Anyway, so that's that's not the main topic. Really? But I just wanted to open oh. up with a little preface. I was getting yeah. all excited for 30 minutes of this. Okay. Well, merge we'll conflict. Try. What dog is right for you? Um, Probably have you owned a dog. No, uh, the one dog that I had in my life was actually my brother's dog, but I got to take care of him too, and went for runs, played in the snow. Dog loves snow, and we lived in New York, so it was always fun to have him uh, tunneling through the backyard and things like that. So I have good fond memories of the puppy. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I um. I had a bunch of dogs growing up uh-huh. and I owned a dog, Trixie, at one one time in life. And um, 
she's with an ex now. So I don't oh, really know what happened there, happens. but um, yeah, <laughs> that happens. That happens. So we're good. I think also because I travel so much, right? It's just kind of crazy. But now I've sent you the Instagram. Oh my God. Yeah, that, that was my, and, you know, my hush there. <laughs> this is for people who don't know. Think of a little chihuahua's face on a husky and miniaturize the husky. It is the it does funniest, really have cutest face, looking yeah. thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's toasty adorbs. Penny is awesome. Is that a curly tail? Um, it it has got a little. She's got a little curly tail. <laughs> yeah, she's 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 cute. I don't know. She's adorable. And I was there in that very first one of the very first photos when she was like a baby. So awesome. There you go. And that's what we're talking Great about. Episode. Alaskan, Great episode. Alaskan <laughs> Alaskan Klee Kai. Yes. Um. She's like. Oh. She's like. I hear you talking about me. Um. Okay. So. This week also was something different that I kind of wanted to talk about and really dive in through, um, which was that I got to have about eight or nine hours side by side what? you. Was it that long? Did we sit side by side about for eight hours? Oh, my God. I try mm-hmm. not to work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're people, everyone knows that we work on a project together. We work on a lot of projects together, like some libraries, but also the live player. And the live player is a relatively complex application. It has the main application. It has a sub-module with multiple sub-modules. And if you've listened to Merge Conflict, you know that essentially we love to hate sub-modules <laughs> and how they work and all this stuff. And I know I, I say I've been able to contribute heavily to the application, like the main application itself, but the underlying infrastructure, which is a hybrid C-sharp, F-sharp <laughs> combination... I just, I, you know, I don't know too much. So I wanted to sit down with you and I wanted to actually not only learn the system, but during that process, try to solve some bugs, which taught me, even after doing years upon years of Visual Studio and .NET development, all of these brand new ways of debugging applications uh, yeah. and business logics. And I was kind of blown away. <laughs> and I know that it sounds like a stupid topic to talk about, but I think that debugging is one of the most important things to know and master when it comes to development. Yeah, for sure. Um, even this year myself, I think my debugging skills have gone up a tiny bit. Uh, I had the opportunity to write a debugger, the other side of the equation. So usually we're all using Visual Studio and debugging an app. I got to write the side of the app that's actually controlling all that. And in so doing, I learned a lot of tricks myself on what these debuggers are actually capable of. So I think this is going to be a fun episode where, what are we going to do? Are we just going to give tips and tricks for debugging? But we should probably talk about strategies, um, I guess. How do you deal with a bug, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, if I was just to go through my own example today of of looking at solving a bug in general, um, how I kind of have to go about it in the library form is I'll sit down and the very first thing I do is try to reproduce it. Yeah. Right? I mean, usually <laughs> I've encountered a bug or I have a bug and hopefully there's good reproduction steps. Yeah. And then at that point, I kind of go to town just trying to debug after I've reproduced it, see what the issue is, set a bunch of breakpoints, look at locals, look at calls, you know, call stacks, look at all this stuff. And often... I think there's two buckets of functionality that you're debugging. Sometimes you're debugging functionality, like, oh, like something isn't functioning correctly. Like Mm -hmm. I told it to take a photo and put it into this bucket and then it's not in this bucket. It's in this other bucket. It's in (laughs) bucket B. It's not in bucket A. And then there's the other part, which is 
somewhere way, way, way down in this code that I have no idea blew up for some reason that I have no idea, and then yeah. boom, explosion. Yeah, it's kind of scary um, debugging those functional ones because you almost feel like, darn, I should have had a unit test for that, right? If a photo's ending up in the wrong bucket, that's a logic error, and all your logic should really be tested beforehand. But the truth is, we all don't have 100% unit tests and all that. And so, but but worse than that is I usually find myself debugging integration scenarios where there's two kind of pieces of code talking to each other and maybe the interface between them isn't very good or I have a bunch of bad assumptions or there's a timing bug or there's an environmental bug, you know, like what other mm-hmm. software is installed. So I find... um if, if I find a logic error like that, I immediately try to get to unit tests. But the other ones, it's a debugging session, just like you said. Yeah, I think if I walk through a normal session, kind of how we were doing it, maybe you can explain why and how you set up this process. Mm-hmm. But with the interpreter itself, there's a lot of things that can go awry. <laughs> and when I was walking through, the first thing that we did was we like reproduced the bug. We're like, okay, the bug is... Uh, an exception occurs and we're like okay what is the exception and then problem often this is something i didn't realize sometimes you just do something for too long and you forget that this feature is there that you could do this so this is the first thing when i go to debug an issue let's just say you get a cold crash of your application Mm -hmm. yeah literally first thing look at the output logs like that's the very first (laughs) thing i do um in Android, there are so many things that are being logged oh, by the gosh. system. And often the stack trace can just give you absolutely everything that you could possibly want and imagine. Often when people post the stack trace in a GIST to me, like it tells me where the exception is mm-hmm. and what is wrong. But some people some people just don't even look at it. They're like, here's the stack trace. I'm like, did you look at the stack trace? It says that this permission is not set, right? So okay. that's the first thing to do. Let's, let's start there. Yeah, the stack trace is awesome. Yeah. Um, I think in the modern world, I've gotten a little frustrated because we're all writing async code now and you don't always mm. actually get a good stack trace from a crash nowadays. And that's a little frustrating because I can't help myself. I can't keep asyncing my code. But if you don't do that, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much one of the benefits of running a managed runtime here. It's a huge benefit of running .NET is that not only do the crashes usually contain the stack trace themselves, but you can ask for a stack trace at different times too. Print them out like as a part of logging statements and things like that to really get a feel for where your code is. I think, gosh, it's totally slipping my mind where to do it. But I think in system diagnostics, there's a stack trace class itself. And so if you have some printf lines, some console write lines, as we'll probably talk about later, um, you can always dump stacks there too to get a real feel for how your app is working. Yeah, let's talk about that actually. That's when we talk about the output log there's a lot of things happening. I mean, this is just from our application output log, and there's a lot of other things, other logs that you can look at. And I'm always doing, I never know what the right thing to do is. There's, cause there's console.writeline line, yeah. and then there's debug.writeline. Yeah. line. And a lot of people coming from iOS or Android, they have their own logging mechanisms like Android and iOS do. I just use system diagnostics.debug. Is that correct? Is that what you'd recommend there, Frank? Um, I don't really like that one, to be honest. Um, <laughs> no. You're doing so, it all wrong. Well, no, no. I just have different, I have different, there's a different, technique to use under a lot of different scenarios so let's start high level though there are logging frameworks out there that allow you to configure all this stuff so instead of hard coding into your code console write line or debug write line you say log write line and then it's up to the log to decide where to spit that stuff out i think 
that's the habit I'm trying to get into in my current apps, you know, just go through a logging interface and then I can turn features on and off at will. So then I'm not locked into any one decision or another. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I, I've always had this I logger right mm-hmm. in my class. Exactly. It's kind of been my, yeah. it, is, is that kind of what you, or do you use something like a Sarah log or I've tried, something like that? I've tried using NLog on iOS and it was fine and it was good, but I found it was, you know, one of those, it does a lot more than I really need. So I tend to just write my own tiny little logging framework. I mean, this sounds terrible. Frank's reinventing the wheel constantly, right? I hate that. But aren't we all? In this case, it's just a stupid log. Like it's literally 20 lines of code. It's nothing fancy. And it's just. So are you do in, in that logger though, are you doing anything like platform specific for iOS or Android or is it just .netty that you output? So let's address console write line. Um, on yeah. iOS, that thing is super efficient. Um, basically, there's very little performance overhead of writing to the console unless someone is actually actively monitoring the log. And on iOS, um, I want to tell everyone there's an app called Console, and it's built right into the operating system. You can go to Spotlight, type Console, and that is the best way to view your iOS logs. It handles the simulator, and it handles devices connected to it. Within Visual Studio, there is a log output window, but honestly, it's just not quite as good as the built-in Apple one. The Apple one is very fast. It has filters and lots of little tricks and things like that. For Android, do you use the one built into Visual Studio or do you use anything fancy? Yeah, so this is actually pretty interesting. I think when I'm lazy, I'll just do a system.debug.writeline. And and, and I should say, right, system.debug.writeline, like that only occurs when you're debugging the application, correct? That's the general rule. The truth is, at least on iOS, it does get echoed to console write line also. So yeah, yeah, I think I don't know how the what the mono implementation is. That's what my thought always was. Well, the real difference um, is it's keyed off of whether you're doing a debug build or not. So when you do a release mm-hmm. build, all those statements get wiped out. And I should say that that's why I tend to prefer not using it. It's because if someone's uh, crashes, uh, if a user, <laughs> if it crashes on a user's device and they send me an email, I can always kind of beg them, hey, would you try running the console app and see what you see for, you know, the app? Mm. So it just leaves that one safety valve of being able to debug a user's device um, in, in the wild. It's a terrible thing. I haven't done it too many times in my career, but I have been thankful the few times I was able to do that. But yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Debug yeah. right line gets I- wiped out. I have, there's a few nice things that the Android debugger does. So when I am debugging Android applications, if you use the Android um, logging, I think it's like Mm android.diagnostics or whatever namespace it's in. One thing that I like inside of there is that you can actually specify a a verbosity, 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 (laughs) verbosity. Depends on where you're from. (laughs) I guess, yeah. So the cool thing there is that inside of the android device manager ddm the the, whatever the ddms (laughs) thing is basically where you can monitor logcat that's what i'm talking about logcat is android's universal everything in the planet everything (laughs) is happening all at once log it is amazing and full of probably way too many keys that are being logged Uh, Um, and ios has copied that that's basically what console mm -hmm. is giving you if you open up console Uh, and don't filter it it's unreadable you're just getting a dump from a million background system processes and even if you're not a developer and you ever want to know what your phone is doing it's a hilarious thing to open up because it's amazing what your phone is doing 
Yeah, so just like on Windows or anything else, there's like a PID associated with your app and you can filter. And the nice thing about Android that I really like, and I'm sure the other ones have this ability is it has like that logging level. Mm -hmm. So you can say this is critical or it's just info. And then inside of the manager, it highlights it in colors of what it's going to be. Yeah. So I can say only show me the criticals, which will automatically happen when a crash occurs to your application. And I always thought that that was a really nice feature. Um um, to the yeah. Android-specific logger. Yeah, iOS is uh, not quite as good as that. I think we have only three levels. It's like error, warning, and info, but it'll highlight them differently also. You don't have like critical versus error. So I tend mm. to, I, that's why I tend to just use console write line. Everything gets dumped to info, so you miss out on the highlighting, and maybe you do want the highlighting, so you'll make your logging framework better, but... In general, it just hasn't been needed. I tend to just use capital letters with the word error, so it's pretty easy to filter. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a, that makes um, the second point when we talk about logging is I'm guilty of this is sometimes I'm like, oh, I'll just output the exception, <laughs> like terrible. <laughs> but ideally, you could output and create some extension methods there to pass in the method name, some variable information. If it was an error, if it's an exception, if it's info, yeah. um, I think also really helps because if you don't do that, I mean, who knows what could actually be happening. And then you have this big dump of even more unreadable gobbledygook. <laughs> and I think that's often the problem with my logs as I'm looking through some other applications and debugging some James of the past, I was like, oh man, I really cared about my logs. I was like, the, everything, every, yeah. even on Android samples, like every page will have a tag and you'll associate oh, that tag. And I was like, nice. that was nice. Mm -hmm. like, that was nice. But you know, these logs are a tool. Honestly, the debugger is where it's at. The debugger is where you should put this level of sophistication. But mm. uh, there are still wonderful tricks you can do with logging. Like I, I, catch all exceptions all the time because I'm writing UI code and I don't want my app to crash. So catch the exception. I may not know how to deal with it, but in the very least, I log it out so that if I'm ever debugging a problem, I can at least track it down. But one little pro tip there is the stack trace is usually enough, often enough, but... Um, I don't know what you do, but I write catch exception, um, CW tab tab. So console write line, quick way to enter that. And then just EX, the exception name. And that way the exception gets printed out. Instead of just doing that, I try to log also what was I actually trying to achieve in the line before. So I'll say error, I was actually trying to open a file and then print out the exception. I find that um, there's a lot of code that can fail in the same way. Like you're opening a file and the file failed, um, the file didn't, it was missing or something like that. So I just want that one little piece of extra meta information of what was I actually trying to accomplish by opening that file. And so just a little pro tip there, make your logs good. <laughs> yeah, I think that there was a lot of times where I would be writing an application and then had a really hard time debugging. And sometimes even debugging it, like things happen so fast. I'm just like literally console right line, do mm -hmm. something, console right line, do something, console right line, do something. So like they would print out every little thing that was happening in the yeah. application. <laughs> and then what was cool is that when I put like an infrastructure around there, you could leave all that information and then maybe it doesn't get printed in release. But when you debug, you're like, oh man, I could actually literally read what my application is doing while yeah. it's running, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I don't code it that well anymore probably <laughs> but i should and um but yeah that's where you get into these debug levels too or logging levels i should say uh this is where 
for some component, you might want that deep down, oh my God, it's going to print out way too much stuff under a normal case. But when I'm debugging, I could absolutely use that data. So in the case of the live player, the interpreter, it can print out every instruction it's executing. That would be terrible to log in the real world because it would slow everything down because you execute instructions very quickly. But when I'm debugging a problem, um, I am happy to troll through a 10,000 line log of every instruction executed because that's exactly the information I need to track down a problem. So I think we quickly get into uh, you want easy ways to enable and disable the logs uh, for things. And I use all sorts of techniques for that. Sometimes I use log levels. Sometimes I just use these Boolean switches, debug, true or false. <laughs> oh, that was my favorite, actually. We were sitting down debugging and and it was like seemed to be like at a I don't know if it was at a class level that you did yeah, it or a class file level. level. Class level, class. yeah. <laughs> and there was literally this debug and it was set to false. And I turned it to true and Frank's like, get ready for this. <laughs> like, every little thing. I was like, holy crap, like literally so much is happening right now and it's amazing. Yeah, it, it basically gives you a full trace of the application at that point. And honestly, that's what you need sometimes um, to get through things. Um yeah. <laughs> debuggers are great. We, we'll get back to the debugger at some point in this debugger conversation, but you just can't beat a log, uh, especially for finding patterns and seeing how things evolve over time. Yeah, well, let's get back to that. But let's first take a little break here, Frank, and thank our amazing sponsor. Yet again, you know them, you love them. If you're not using them already, that's silly because I use them in my applications. I simply love them. They're our good friends over at SyncFusion. SyncFusion essentially helps you deliver awesome into your software quickly. And that's because they include more than 800 components and frameworks for .NET and JavaScript. Think of this as all the stuff that you don't want to build. So things like charts and graphs and advanced list views and grids and all this complex, ridiculous stuff that's awesome and makes your apps absolutely awesome that aren't built into the platform. Syncfusion's been doing it for years. I've been building with Syncfusion even way back when I was working at Canon. We use Syncfusion for all of our stuff. They have great controls and components for ASP.NET, JavaScript, WinForms, WPF, UWP, Xamarin, um, you name it, they support it. And they have all of this other great stuff for doing Excel and PDF and Word. But you don't have to take my word for it. In fact, I'm going to read back a little snippet from um, James in the UK that wrote into the show talking about Syncfusion and how awesome they are. And he writes in and says, their components are awesome. And especially their more complex ones. He's like, sometimes you don't talk about this, so you should talk about it, James. And I go, okay. He goes, you know, the things that you don't want to roll yourself. He goes, the big wins are the grids. They're super configurable and they have lots of editing values. They have diagramming controls. And to his knowledge, they're the only ones still out there. And their Excel, Word, and PDF have full read and write components. And on top of that, their support is absolutely fantastic. So don't just take it from me. Take it from Merge Conflict listeners that love Syncfusion. If you haven't tried them yet, you have to go do it. They have a full free trial of all of their controls and a free community edition. You can get this stuff for free, people. Go to syncfusion.com slash mergeconflict. You can read and learn about all of their controls on every single platform. Like I said, they have a community edition, so you get stuff for free. And if you're bigger or in an enterprise, they have a flat rate fee for all of their controls. It's simply fantastic. And we could not thank Syncfusion enough. So thank you, Syncfusion, and head to syncfusion.com slash merge conflict. Thanks, Syncfusion. 
Oh, the, I love them. The data grids. I man, I overuse data grids in WinForms, but I tell you, they're a great UI. People love Excel. Like if you can just quickly enter a bunch of data. Data grid's the way to go. <laughs> data grid is. It is. I don't want to ever build my own data grid. And there's a reason that there's like never been a data grid in a flight. Just put it in a data grid. Oh man. Yeah. They could be overused, stuff. but man, they're they're great for just quick entry. <laughs> yeah, they are. Especially when you're building enterprise applications or even not. I mean, I don't know. You just and especially if you want to visualize stuff, mm-hmm. you could use a data grid, guess what? For logging while, oh, while yeah. you're in your application. <laughs> way to bring it home. <laughs> yes. Um, I think you touched a good point, which was debugging. And the coolest thing that you showed me, and I know people are going to be like, James, mm-hmm. you're an idiot. Okay. Well, you, I can't believe you didn't know this. So an exception occurred, and let's say it was um, ah. a, a, an argument null exception. Sure. But we don't know where that's at because it's happened way down low in some other library. Mm-hmm. So Frank goes, oh, just like click on that little little um (laughs) breakpoint thing and i'm like okay and he's like type the name of the exception and visual studio like auto completes it how nice is that they call Um, them um exception catch points so they they mm -hmm. rename it a little um and what this is is it'll break on the what's technically called the first chance of the exception. So the moment you say throw new exception, the moment that throw executes, there is a signal to the debugger, this exception's about to be thrown. Now, normally when your code is executing, what happens, um, it pops the stack until it gets to a catch block. And then mm-hmm. um, usually you're, the debugger will break then on the catch block. So what happens is you get to see the result of catching the exception, but you never get to see the state of things when the exception first occurred. If you want to see that, you add one of these catch points. Or I, I think in Visual Studio for Windows, um, I think they actually call them first chance exceptions, to be honest. And anyway, you can enable so. those. Yeah. Yeah, there's also that little checkbox that says break when this exception type is user unhandled as well. I think there's like other little breakpoints inside of there that you can do. I know that the yeah. newer ones have gotten really, really kind of built in in the exception settings. Yeah, for first chance exceptions is kind of what I remember. And there was like turning on JIT compilation and off <laughs> JIT compilation, like all these other little tweaks. Oh, right? there's but, lots of events. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's the first chance that you want. And the cool thing is, even if you're um, deep down in someone else's library and this exception occurs, you can still see their stack. You can still see their local variables, even if you don't have any debugger info. And that's because mm-hmm. .NET is managed. It knows all this stuff. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we have very detailed stack traces for every condition that it can be in. So this has happened to me a lot, <laughs> where I'm basically debugging through other people's libraries, even without their source code. You're doing it kind of blindly <laughs> because all you can see are the locals and maybe some disassembly, but that's usually not useful. But it, if you're trying to find what did I do that caused this problem, there no- nothing beats these first chance exceptions. Yeah, and there was like, I think there's a bunch of other stuff in that dialogue too that I probably should use, but then I don't ever <laughs> because I like to waste time, I guess. And you can do stuff like you can say, when this variable equals five, then break on this breakpoint, right? Because yeah. often you hit a breakpoint over and over and over oh, yeah. and over again. Um, but like on a specific breakpoint, you can set that condition, which is cool. Yeah, we actually had this problem ourselves. Um, we were transferring over 100 plus files, but only one file out of that 100 uh, were 
giving us a problem. Now, we never <laughs> got to that advanced point of actually putting a condition in, but you can imagine if you had a loop and you could say, only break on this exception when the file name equals this. And that way you can you don't have to hit next, next, next over 100 items to get to the one that you actually want to get to. So that's a super time-saving feature. And I'll often rewrite code just to enable that more easily. Like I'll store something in a local variable just so I can set that breakpoint more easily because it's so useful when you need it. You know, that's one part about refactoring code to make it more debuggable. Mm -hmm. Like often we want to write this super tight, super nice code. <laughs> so you're like, oh, on this one line of code, I'm going to oh, yeah. check a null coalesce and I'm going to do this thing <laughs> and this other thing. And then I'm going to set this variable and return yeah. it. And I'm like, oh, God, you can't see the variable. How do you even see it? You know, the debuggers are getting good, but then I go to my watch window and I'm like, and I got to go to watch or local and then mm -hmm. try to slap it in there. And it's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I do this way too often in F sharp because F sharp has such a uh, short composable syntax that it really is. You can play these code golf games with yourself, but you know, usually what I do is it's no big deal to rewrite a line of code. So I'll, I'll write it in the code golf style because that makes me happy. But then when I'm debugging it, something goes wrong, then I'll break it out into longer variables and things like that. So you don't have to be too preemptive on this stuff as long as you can recompile. Yeah. And then also another good thing to do too, is that when you're actually going through and create testable code that's when these additional breakpoints goes on i'm linking to this doc on just the visual studio for mac one because that's what we were using but it'll mm -hmm. also be available in visual studio 2017 and probably other features too but this nice little edit breakpoint allows you to decide here's what's cool ready ready for this <laughs> what do you, do you want it to actually pause the program that's our normal thing mm -hmm. or what if you just printed a message and continued like uh-huh I've done what? this That's so one. Cool. Yeah, this is a really quick way. If you actually don't want to stop your app or for whatever reason, recompile it. Yeah, you just start setting breakpoints everywhere and add your own basically console write lines here. And it works beautifully. It goes through the same thing as debug write line. And so, yeah, it's great. A great little feature there. It's called tracing, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's tracing through it. Yeah. yeah. And What's cool about that is you can use string interpolation in there too, which is really nifty. And mm -hmm. then this this blog also links to a lot of other options. Like, did you know that there's an evaluation timeout? Maybe you need more than 2.5 <laughs> seconds. You can just modify those. They, these are things that I don't think about. And I often get into that problem where, oh, the evaluation timed out. Like, oh, okay, whatever. But I need more time because I'm maybe debugging against a device and things are happening. Or a good thing that, or a bad thing that happens is this object has been garbage collected. Oh, that one happens to me a lot. Do you have any suggestions for that one? No. No, <laughs> that one just happens. Um, well, so that instance, some things that you could be doing are that I think what happens here is if the variable is local, then it's more likely to be swept compared to maybe it's more of a class level so your classes in memory i'm not really positive and it's usually the generators that actually cause the problem mm -hmm. like your i enumerables things that are generating collections oh, yeah. at runtime so when you go to inspect a property it generates all these objects basically an enumerable but that's the debugger that generated it and it gets garbage collected unfortunately while you're debugging um i guess you can to array it that's usually That's what, what I, I like do. do. I create a little local variable with that thing to a RAID if it's if I desperately need to be able to inspect it. Yeah. That's kind of my my tip and trick. When in doubt to array it. I don't know. <laughs> when, okay, so <laughs> yeah, here's a funny totes. thing. Like so so when I was 
I was writing a persistent logger. This is kind of funny because I wasn't writing a logger for debug. I was writing a logger for people and I was persisting between state and I was serializing out like this link query and the link query that it gives me back like is an I enumerable. So I'm like, oh, just take that I enumerable. But when you run that through something like json.net or you serialize that to a string, it, it isn't just an array or an I enumerable. It's some like I queryable mm -hmm. thingy, right? Because then, and then there's yeah. these stacks of things. So kind of when you boil it down to an array, I mean, I don't think there's anything else that's <laughs> more straightforward than an array, correct? No, uh, uh, arrays are pretty much the lowest level you can get in the CLR for, you know, a collection of things. Um, but just as a little tiny weirdness psychological problem I have, um, I tend to call to list instead of to array. And that's because to array often needs to do a double allocation. And I just, mm -hmm. the tiny little optimizer in my heart, even though it totally doesn't matter, it just, it really doesn't matter, people. I mean, profile, but it, it won't. <laughs> I always write to list instead of to array, just because I know it's not double allocating then. Interesting. It looks like you're going to have to do a little code review on my, <laughs> my PR that I sent in it's recently. It's fine. To array is fine. I'm really calling this a mental condition. This is a problem I need to work through. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I never think about those things either. To be like, how how would I even know that two array does a double allocation? Oh, I think uh, years ago I even posted on Stack Overflow. I was like, "What what is going on?" I wanted to know what was the performance cost of two array versus two list, and it turns out two array, not exactly, but you can think of it as it create it calls two list first and then converts the list to an array, and uh. if the list and the array happen to be if the length of the list happens to be a power of two, then it won't reallocate. But if it's not a power of two, then it will have to reallocate. So it's really kind of dumb. <laughs> that is that is dumb. Interesting. Yeah, but <laughs> what you said before about arrays being the most low level, you can count on them working, especially the debugger experience, then they're the way to go. If you've ever had a malfunctioning debugger where it wouldn't show like a list correctly, it just gave you the implementation details of the list, like yeah. pointers, yeah. So in that That's case, yeah, it is the worst. If you ever run into that, you have to go down to an array just to get the debugger to behave. Yeah, and I think that for me, when I'm debugging, I just put breakpoints everywhere. So I think some of these things that we even just talked about that I forget are there. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna breakpoints everywhere, but none of them are gonna be actual breakpoints. They're just gonna be like system logs. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Yeah, um, and there's good UI for it in uh, Visual Studio now, where you can enable and disable really easily. It's just a little checkbox. And so, totally. The problem is they won't last between different computers. They're saved in like your user profile, your user file, a, a little file saved next to your project. And unless you're checking that into GitHub, then you're not going to get on your next computer. So that's when yeah, you have to drop. add log lines. Yeah. Dropbox the world. There you go. Just sync <laughs> it. OneDrive the world. Now, once you actually find the bug, I think this is one thing that impressed me when you said, all right, let's not fix the bug. Let's reproduce the bug in a unit test. And I know that we're going yeah. back to test-driven development, but this isn't test-driven <laughs> development because no. we've already found a bug. So now we're fixing the bug. So kind of. This is a regression um, test. This has a name. Regression. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So the thing is, an interpreter is a very complicated piece of software. And 
oftentimes in the early days, I would find I'd fix one bug and then break something else. So very early on, I had to get very religious about writing regression tests. Anytime I find a bug in the interpreter, I try to first repro it using a test and work my butt off to get a repro. Not, not everything's reproducible in a unit test scenario. But for everything that I can, I really religiously write that test and get it reproing there and fix it there. Yeah, and I think that even in 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 parts where it's just .NET logic, that's easy. Mm -hmm. And then there are bits and pieces where you can test it on iOS and it's business logic. But often the problem is that you're you have to essentially sometimes run things on a device or simulator. Right. Do, do you ever find yourself in this case where like you oh, have yeah. to run something? Yeah, that's that's the unfortunate one. But that's why I immediately go to um, the test side first. Um, it's kind of a proof because when you're debugging something that has a lot of moving parts, you make a lot of assumptions. Even if you track down the bug, like, oh, this variable has the wrong value, you're still not exactly sure why. You don't have the full history in your head. So I think going down to the test at least gives you that opportunity to discover if this really was an environmental problem or if it's just simply a logic problem. So even if you think it's environmental, I still try to at least do some kind of unit test for it. Ideally, we could write uh, UI tests and (laughs) you can write UI tests. I'm just too lazy to write UI tests. (laughs) So I try to get it to that level first. But of course, not everything can be. Yeah, and I think UI tests are good. I found myself doing like simple end unit light tests because we have the end unit light mm-hmm. test runners, yep. which I know aren't great, but they they work fine. And yeah. when I need to run something like the settings plugin, um, I actually found out recently because I gave Prashant, poor Prashant, um, I gave poor Prashant the task of attempting to continuously integrate these end unit light test ah, runner tests really? into CI. Mm-hmm. Nice. And how did you do that through test cloud? Well, so that was the first part is like, hey, you could then create and then test the test cloud version of that. But then you actually put it on a thing. Yeah. Now we're already building the actual, you know, libraries on a Mac Mm -hmm. or on a PC. So what you can actually do is he wrote a blog post that just came out today is he uses the built in touch server. Do you know the touch server at all from Rolf? Yes. No, but I'm liking where this is going. Tell me more. Yes, the touch server, which I think he's now apparently from 2012. um, It's a tool that helps you essentially run automation of apps inside of a simulator or on a device. Okay. Mm -hmm. So So, um, what? Yeah, (laughs) that's super cool. I've always wanted to automate simulators. Now, I do have to say the recent versions of Xcode have actually made this easier. They've added command line tools to Mm -hmm. uh, install apps on the simulator, execute the simulator, all that stuff. So technically, you can do your own CI thing. But why write your own when someone else has written it for you? So <laughs> tell me <Exactly>. more. <laughs> so yeah, what's really cool is there's like a little bash file that you can run that says, hey, I want you to output these test resolve things. Here's the you know touch server cool. that you can download from a server and then run it on this device. So what we're doing now with every single time we push code to the, right now we started with the settings because it's the most popular plugin and we're going on to connectivity next is go run these test scripts and we're running it on our own machine. So a little simulator pops up, installs it, does whatever and runs a test and then reports that back to actual Visual Studio team services, which is kind of cool. 
and it happens. Like it's it's yeah. kind of bananas. Um, I, I love and that. It's really the, cool. Um, I've often I I'm a big end unit person also, mostly because Visual Studio for Mac has good support for it. Um, but I always uh, f- always limited myself to not doing much stuff that touched the platform. So in this case, iOS. So I often didn't unit test anything that touched iOS specifically because I couldn't automate that test until now, until I just had this conversation with you and I'm realizing the mistake I've been making all these years. Mm -hmm. But now I can't wait. It's just, yeah, because even if it's not UI stuff, just like image loading, um, Mm. database stuff, just anything that requires an active running device. Yeah, that sounds great for. Thanks for that. Yeah, and then I'm going to make him do it for Android too because you can. There's mm-hmm. an Android version of it too, I guess, mm-hmm. that lets you do it. So yeah, boom. boom. I mean, that's when I think <laughs> about you know you and I were having this conversation today as you were debugging through an issue and it didn't work in the simulator, but then it worked on the device. That is yes. the worst, by the way. You actually oh do have to God. test in multiple places. It's yeah. True. I, and I'm so disappointed. And it took finding a forum post on Apple's website. It turns out it's just an old bug. And everyone who's ever tried to use this control knows it doesn't work on the simulator, except for you, <laughs> you know, the general you out there using it for the first time. You're like, why won't this stupid thing work? And then works fine on the device. All right. Mm-hmm. Yay. Don't forget, Yay. test on device. <laughs> test on those device. Yeah, it's actually really important. And in fact, sometimes you have to test on multiple devices. Mm. I mean, We talk about this often about the developer setup, right? And I will say for me, there's a few things that are really important, like having a newer Android device and an older Android device that would help happen to me right now. And then another one is owning an iPhone and owning an iPad. I know it sucks, but you got to own both (laughs) of them. I'm sorry. Um, What about uh, Android? Do you have an Android tablet? Well, so... um, um, mm, do I have an that Android sounds like tablet? a no. That sounded like a no. No, I but do. I should. I work on a seven inch. That's that's how I test my Android tablet stuff. Just because I think they are popular, as, um, especially the cheaper ones, seem to get yeah. used a lot. So at least make sure your app works on seven inch. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think the difference is that for me, especially when you're doing like Xamarin Form stuff or doing some development stuff, usually between an iOS device or sorry, an Android phone and Android tablet, there's no real big differences, I would Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. as far as executing the code where often, for instance, not often, but on occasion on iOS, you have to do something a very specific way on iPhone versus iPad. A good example of that is like, let's say the um, photo picker control (laughs) right on iPad, you have to show it as a popover. It gets yeah. required, you know. That one is notorious. Everyone gets it wrong because you really have to read the docs to know how to use that one correctly. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. use James's plugin. <laughs> or use my plugin. And it was funny because I was looking through my plugin and I go, hmm. I go, why why it's been a few years. I'm like, why am I doing it? Why am yeah. I doing it only for the picture <laughs> photo? And then I look at the docs and it's funnily enough, I used to do it for the camera and they, they recommend not doing a popover for the camera and doing full screen. So oh, I'm like, yeah. oh, I must remove that based on the docs that I read three years ago, but now I totally forget. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good place for doc comments, people. <laughs> Intricate mm-hmm. things like that. I love putting uh, references to Apple docs and whoever's docs.net docs in my code because I know future of me will be so happy to get that link. Oh, yeah. Future you is happy all the time where you tell yourself, why did you put this thing here? Why did I name this A? Why does this seem so dumb? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. How how do you feel? Do you feel like we even, did we even touch the surface of debugging here? 
I think so. I think the last part for me is always once you found the issue, here's my other pro tip of the day. Oh, okay. When you find something and something goes wrong, the pro tip is to go to Google, okay? <laughs> Type in mm-hmm. what the problem is. Mm-hmm. And then if it's Xamarin, put in Xamarin at the end. Like just add the, that in there. At the beginning. I think it's better at the beginning. Either really. way. Trigger that algorithm. Trigger yeah, that algorithm. Don't and, and don't be fancy. Just copy and paste whatever's in your log. Yeah, <laughs> Let Google figure that. it out. <laughs> yeah, Google's got it. It's smart. It'll figure it out for you. And to be honest, half the time that people post something, I'll just literally take their question, post it on Google, and guess what? There's the answer. You know, And often it's, <laughs> sometimes it also has to do with just Android or iOS. So feel free that if you're doing Xamarin development, guess what? If it's happening in Android or iOS, you can still read the Objective-C or Java documentation sure. or Stack Overflow posts, and that'll help. Yeah, I, I hope people do that. N- never be afraid to read the other docs because they are useful and especially like the stack overflows. But I, I think everyone must do that, right? <laughs> when, when you're desperate for a solution, you don't care what language it's in. <laughs> yeah, my favorite is when you have to dive into the Google bug tracker or into a radar, which oh, no, no. I hope no one has to do, but I've done it. That's when you times. take a step back and rethink a new solution to the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that is a bad path. If you're waiting for a radar to be fixed, a bug in Apple, good luck. <laughs> Same thing Just, in Google. I, I've been yeah. waiting for this text-to-speech bug to be fixed forever, and I get emails <laughs> on occasion of a new comment. I'm like, I'm still interested, but I know it's never going to happen. Right. And if you have a radar, yeah, that's <laughs> never going to happen. This is not going to happen. Unless you go to WWDC maybe and, and ping someone on it. I'll, I'll take that back. During the beta season, they, your radars will get fixed, but the rest of the time they won't. <laughs> no, yeah. So I think that's my, my pro tip. Actually, if you're looking for anything, pro tip, if you're looking for anything, um, go to Google, then type in Xamarin, then whatever you're looking for, and it, it'll probably come up. I had someone ask me about SiriKit, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to Google, and like, here's a bunch of stuff. You know, you may not, you may have Googled SiriKit, something, something else, but then didn't put Xamarin or something, or maybe my my Google, actually, you know what, maybe my Google has so much Xamarin information yeah. in it, maybe it's better. Is that a problem? Mm, I never thought of that. I don't know. Who can predict the algorithm? I know. Because if us. you're new, <laughs> if you're new to it, then it'll have no context of all of the documentation and blogs that you've read. That's scary. I think you're overthinking it. Don't yeah, worry. Just Google it. <laughs> just Google it. Anything else you want to talk about? Did we crush it? I don't well, know. We crushed it. You know, you gave a pro tip. I'm going to give a quick pro tip. I'll make it fast because we're long pro episode. Tip. Pro I tip. Love long episodes. The immediate window. Do you use this puppy? Mm. Which one's that one? So the immediate window pops up. Visual Studio has this both versions where when you're paused at a breakpoint, normally we all just look through the locals window or if we're really advanced, we use the watch window. But mm. there's this other window called the immediate, which gives you a REPL, a read avail print loop. So it feels mm-hmm. like a little dynamic language. So in there, you can pretend that you're just writing code wherever your breakpoint is. And so you can create variables, you can call functions, you can inspect properties, and you do that by typing it in. So you say x.name and it'll show you x's name. Or if you type x, it'll show you everything in x. Or if there's a method on x, you can call x.do it. So it's just a quick way to write code while you're paused. And that is pretty much like advanced debugging where you really just need to start changing things around or really digging deep into an object to find out what's going on. But that immediate window, I love. Sometimes I'll just write an app, hit pause and just play in there and explore the framework and do lots of other things. It's a nice little environment. 
You know what I think it is? Is I think that I use the watch window wrong. Yeah. Like I think I use it <laughs> as an immediate window, like because that's what I'm doing, and then it's like no. No, I hate you, basically. <laughs> the watch window is good if you're going to hit the same breakpoint multiple times. Um, but mm. even in the immediate window, you can just press the up arrow and repeat the last command. So you can just up arrow, enter, up arrow, enter. Uh, you know? That's nice. Yeah, good little tricks, the immediate window. Tips that's all I tricks. got. <laughs> all right, cool. All right, well, let's get out of here. Let's first, of course, thank our amazing amazing patreons patrons on patreon we're gonna get it right one of these days i like it. we've had we've had such great not only just feedback but we've had great conversations in our discord chat which is just for patrons um in the last week we've onboarded tyler bob matthew robbins big shout out for huge donation Ooh. getting a thank you card really appreciate that great tools um matthew brandon kevin jonathan eden and uh, Daniel and Daniel, I might have shouted them out, but they're getting a double <laughs> shout out. Awesome. Um, so cool. Just for a few bucks, you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash mergeconflict.fm or just clicking in the show notes and you get access to our discord where Frank totally figured out how to join. Yeah, it only took me like a week or so. I'm, I'm not good at these social network things, but I got in. I even have a username called Frank. Yes. Frank. Very predictable. <laughs> it, it is we have um a few rooms in there where you can actually chat with us about lightning talks um loose is now um correcting all my blog posts so that's cool <laughs> we have a blog post channel um and a new episode what's cool is that our patrons actually get access to all of our episodes before they air and they actually get to listen to them make sure there's no typos and help us out a little bit make the show even better which is super rad so definitely do that. If you're listening to us on a podcast application, hit that subscribe button. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's been a little bit. So if you leave us a review this week, maybe I'll send you a sticker. We'll figure out how that would work, but I don't know how you can validate Are you it. Bribing? Is that legal? Whatever. I don't know. Leave sticker. us the reviews. We love it. Five stars. <laughs> um, or if you become a patron, that's how you can get stickers too. It's the only way to get stickers now. Did you know that? Oh, no, that's kind of we took the store down. That was a huge profit machine. You know, I was really relying on that. It wasn't. But Sticker Mule took down the, the marketplace. So <laughs> oh, it wasn't no. in our control. <laughs> and I'm not going to go into the sticker business. So um, <laughs> if you become a patron for the same actually cheaper, I think it might have been around the same price or whatever for, <laughs> for it. You can hop on that anyways. Subscribe us, share us. We would love it. You can follow the show on Twitter at MergeConflict.fm. You can follow me at James Montemagno, Frank at Proclarum. We would love it if you just chatted with us. That'd be great. Anything else, Frank? I'm really enjoying the Lightning Talks channel in the Discord. All the ideas. We're going to have a great episode 90. Not, yeah, I'm excited. Coming up on 90. All right, people. <laughs> until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.